0: We're reading from um, Deuteronomy chapter 5, probably the best-known chapter in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord. Because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he, God, said, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them, or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me, and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any one of your or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant And maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land. The Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You should not, shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are the commands the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from, from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on the two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a man can live even if God speaks with him. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the fire, as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you, and we will listen and obey. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me, And keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Go, tell them to return to their tents. But you stay here with me so that I may give you all the commands, decrees and laws. You are to teach them, to follow in the land I am going to giving them to possess. So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. Now we're reading... A little bit more from Luke chapter 6, Lord of the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some of the heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawfully only for the priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. And said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus.
1: Well, thank you, Jan, for those uh, two long readings, and uh, thank you again for your warm welcome. It's lovely to be here again. I think the last time I was here, I was reflecting on it this morning, was uh, just nearly two years ago. Um, I think you just announced that Stephen and Kathy were about to join the church uh, as a pastor, and uh, it's a delight to be here again to look out and see a number of familiar faces, uh, but also a number of people who I don't know, uh, which is a sign to the way in which God, a uh, testimony to the way in which God is using this church to reach out into this part of the world. I look forward to meeting you over these coming weeks. Uh, can I ask you please to have your Bibles open at Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, back on page 129. We're going to spend a bit of time in there today. Uh, likewise, you'll see on the inside of the handout, uh, that, as you came in on the left-hand cover, uh, there is an outline of what I'm going to speak about today, which you'll find useful to have in front of you. and uh, That'll give a bit of structure to what we're going to talk about. Um, as you uh, get those things ready, let me lead us in prayer as we come to reflect on God's Word. Heavenly Father, thanks for your Word, thanks that it's been written for us and for our salvation um, as we think today about what you said through the prophet Moses uh, those thousands of years ago uh, to your people at the time, we pray that you might enable us to hear how your Son enables us to make sense of it and to live lives that glorify Him. Amen. Uh, Well, if you look at your handout, you'll see at the top uh, there, point one, I want to tell you a bit about the series that we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks uh, as we look at Deuteronomy 5 through 8. Uh, My guess is this is a different kind of series from the one that you normally have here at Trinity Northeast. I know that as a church you're committed to uh, the principle of continuous exposition of the Bible, that is, you just open a part of the Bible and you start working your way through it week in, week out, allowing God's Word to speak to you, and we'll be doing part of that. Uh, But in particular, what we're doing over these next four weeks is looking at a particular aspect of uh, the Christian life, what it means to live by faith. Uh, And the way in which we're going to do that is to focus on Moses' exhortation to the Israelites as they stood on the edge of the Promised Land, uh, this place that God had said that He would bring them to, finally, after hundreds of years, they're about to enter in and Moses relays God's word to the people on how they are to live under God's promises. Uh, That's that's what we're going to do. We're going to see what he says at that time and then try and think about how it applies to us today, uh, particularly considering what Jesus has to say because, of course, for us as Christians, uh, well, uh, we have heard not just God's prophet, Moses, we have heard God's son. And so it's important for us to reflect on how Jesus helps us to understand what's been said in the Bible. And you can see there on the top left are the different chapters each week. If you'd like to read ahead, I'd encourage you to do so and what we're going to reflect on each time. Uh, This week in Deuteronomy five, the issue that I'd like us to try and come to terms with is the one that I printed there for you. Uh, Isn't Christianity just rules and regulations? Let me say a few words about this by way of setting the scene. I think that for us as Christians, uh, particularly in our context here in Australia, to the extent that people understand anything about Christianity, uh, which is increasingly less so, but to the extent that they do, I think, well, we Christians, we have a pretty big image problem. You see, most people, I think, in our country, think that Christianity is all about keeping rules and regulations. And for that reason, it's hardly that surprising, really, that most people aren't that interested in finding out more about Christianity. Those who aren't believers, they see all the things that Christians do, all the stuff that our life is filled with, on top of all the other things that everyone else has to do. Little wonder then, I think, that they suspect, why would I be interested in doing that, in joining up for that, in signing up for that? Of course, as Christians, what we long to do is explain to people that we don't live trying to keep rules... We live under God's grace. We know we can't keep all the rules and regulations that the Bible describes, but we know that God in His kindness still forgives us and accepts us. That's grace. And yet, I think that if someone understands what we're describing when we talk about grace, and often they don't, but if they do understand what we're describing when we talk about grace, they have one of three reactions. One is they say, well, that's just too good to be true, isn't it? You can't keep all that and still God forgives you? That's impossible. Or they think, uh, actually, that's too hard to swallow. Because, of course, before you can receive grace, you have to accept that you can't do anything to help yourself. And that's deeply offensive to most Australians uh, who live life trying to get ahead. Trying to look out for number one. Or People, when they hear about grace, they say, what's the point? After all, if you can't keep all those rules, why would you even bother trying? Which is a tremendously destructive way to live if you've ever experienced other people living that way. I suspect our lack of clarity when it comes to talking about the rules and the regulations, things like the Ten Commandments, they're most obvious actually when you focus on the Ten Commandments themselves. As Jan rightly pointed out, one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, I suspect the Ten Commandments are misunderstood by Christians and non-Christians alike, to be honest. As Christians, should we still keep the Ten Commandments? If we don't, then why don't we? What if we don't keep the Ten Commandments, given the dire warnings that we heard in that chapter just read to us? At the church where I attend and where I serve, um, Trinity City, uh, many of you will have been there, but if you haven't, uh, what you might not be aware of is that on the inside of the front door to the church, we have printed the Ten Commandments. Which always strikes me as not a particularly welcoming way to invite people into our church, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Um, I comfort myself in the fact that most people don't notice them and therefore walk straight past them, uh, as I do actually, most weeks. Although interestingly, this big board which has the Ten Commandments, it's sandwiched between, on one side, the Lord's Prayer and on the other, the Apostles' Creed, which we do say most weeks. And yet not once in 13 years at Trinity City have we ever recited the Ten Commandments. I think that's because we're not quite sure what to do with them most of the time. The biggest problem of all, the biggest problem with all this talk about rules and regulations, about laws and commandments, the biggest problem is that they hardly portray God in a positive light. And that's where I want to get to by the end of this talk. What do they tell us about God himself? Well, let's dive into Deuteronomy chapter 5, there on page 129. Uh, Please do have it open because I'm going to say a few things about some of the verses in detail, although not all of them, uh, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, To set the scene, keeping your finger in chapter 5, just turn back a couple of pages to chapter 1. I've already alluded to this at the start, but just so we know when uh, this passage is to be read and what the context is, chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan, that is in the Arabah, opposite all those places. Verse 2, it takes 11 days to go from Horeb, or Mount Sinai, it takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, by the Mount Seir Road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. Uh, The Israelites are on the edge of the promised land, finally. Uh, This is the place where, having rescued them from Egypt some 40 years before, uh, God has finally brought them. And they stand there on the edge of receiving this great inheritance that has been promised to them for generations. As they're about to enter in, uh, God says, through Moses, this is how you are to live. And so then, if you come to chapter 5, verse 1, Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. Moses is giving them instructions on how they are to prosper in the promised land. Now, when Moses says, hear these commands and laws I'm about to give you, he's talking about more than just chapter 5. In fact, there's another 29 chapters afterwards He's actually referring to what we call the Old Testament law. And uh, scholars have sat down and tried to, in fact, count how many commandments there are. Now, if you thought 10 were many, uh, in fact, there are 603. 603 different commands, rules and regulations that the Old Testament people of God were to keep when they pass into the Promised Land. And, of course, when I tell you it's not just 10 commandments you have to learn, but now another 593 more... Surely at this point you're thinking, that doesn't sound particularly well liberating, does it? In fact, that sounds like a burden that's almost too much to bear. So as we make our way through chapter five, what I'd like to do is point out for us all the ways in which we see God's goodness. We're gonna look at the commands, that's fine. But what I want to highlight is all the evidence of God's goodness that comes through in this chapter. Pick it up in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, the Lord, Moses says to the people, the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, Mount Sinai. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us, who are alive here today. That's an interesting thing for Moses to say, isn't it? He's reflecting back 40 years, to when God gave the Ten Commandments on the top of Mount Sinai. And do you notice what he says here in verse 2? He says it was a covenant not just with those who were there at the time, it was also a covenant with those who are here today who were either children at the time or were not even born. Isn't God good? Isn't God good? He speaks in advance so that we might grow up always knowing how to live. Always knowing that He is bonded to us. He has made a covenant with us, even from before we were born. There's lots of work being done these days and lots of opportunities to find out about your ancestry your lineage, your heritage. People often want to understand their family of origin, to understand why they are the way they are at this point in their life. It doesn't get any better than this, does it? To know that even before we were born, God has made a covenant with us. Of course, for us who are Christians, we know that from Ephesians 1, that that promise was made even before the creation of the world. Well, see how the passage continues, verses 4 and 5. Moses says, Back then at Horeb, the Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. Now, at that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and didn't go up the mountain. Now, these two verses remind us that God doesn't just speak to the people, which in and of itself is an act of kindness. God is not silent. He talks with us. But it says that he spoke to the people through Moses. And he does that because the people, to be honest, they're terrified of hearing God's voice. It's not just the hearing of God's voice, it's actually the fact that the mountain itself, well, it was ablaze at one stage. They are so afraid that they, though they know they should listen, they don't want to. And I think at this point of you know, infants, of little children, you know, who say, I'm scared, my ears hurt, make it stop. That's what the people are like. And yet God, in his kindness, still speaks to them and he speaks to them through Moses. Isn't God good? Isn't God good? He doesn't just download information on us. He doesn't just say, pay attention and listen, even when the words are too hard for us to hear. He uses words that we can understand. And he uses a tone of voice through Moses, through an intermediary, through a broker who stands between us and God so that we might carry on a conversation with him. Uh, I mentioned before, obviously, that uh, I'm Chinese, um, although I was Australian born and so I've lived all my life here and therefore one of the problems uh, with that is that uh, I grew up speaking English and I can't speak Chinese, uh, which is course, incredibly embarrassing and difficult uh, with the large number of international students uh, both at Trinity City and on campus and particularly those from mainland China. It's very hard to talk with someone when you can't use words that they comprehend. Uh, it's been pointed out to me that uh, for most of us um, when it comes to speaking to someone who speaks a different language, what we tend to do is just speak louder and more slowly uh, as if that would make it easier for them to understand which clearly it doesn't. The picture that's been described to you for us in Deuteronomy 5 is of God using an interpreter. Moses. A gentle interpreter. One whom the people will respond to. Who will understand, they'll understand his language. Once again, for us who are Christians, the picture is strikingly obvious. The parallel has been drawn, I think. It points us towards the Son of God, who will stand between us and God as our mediator. Well, let's come to the commandments themselves. You'll be glad to know, we will get there eventually. The Ten Commandments themselves, verses 6 through 21. And look at how it begins, though, verse 6. Even before you get to the Ten Commandments, verse 6 is, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. You see, even before God will show us how to live, that's verses 7 through 21, verse 6 is yet another reminder of all that God has done for us. Isn't God good? You see, before we're told how to live, we're reminded of how dear and precious in God's sight we are. So, with that in mind, let's look at a couple of the commandments. Uh, Take, for example, the Sabbath commandment, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you are to labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Verse 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Do you see how the command is framed? The reason the Israelites are to rest on the Sabbath is because God rescued them from slavery in Egypt where they had to work every day day and night. What they're being told is that the reason they're to act is first and foremost because of what God has already done for them. Or likewise, uh, the, command, the second command about idols or graven images, come back to verse 8 with me, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now the reason I've focused on this particular commandment is that it gets to the very heart of what it means to try and keep God's law. When God says to the people through Moses that He shows His love to a thousand generations of those who love Him, He's not giving them a license or permission to live however they want. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card that enables them to sin, knowing that God has showed His love to one of their ancestors. Every generation must appropriate God's grace for themselves again. Rather, what we're being told is that God displays both righteous jealousy, uh, like a wife or a husband, and He shows compassionate love. But if His righteous jealousy is to the third and fourth generation, His love is to a thousand generations to come. I heard it once said that uh, God is both righteous in His jealousy and He is compassionate in His love There are those two things, but if you had to pick it, you'd say that he leans towards compassion. That's who he is, in and of himself. And for that reason, this is one of my favourite verses in the Bible, I think. God shows his love to a thousand generations of those who love him. It's been brought home to me recently, as I've tried to work out something of my lineage, something of my heritage. Um, As I said, Australian-born, but... Chinese, obviously. Uh, Recently, I discovered that my great-great-grandmother, who lived in China in the middle of the 19th century, uh, she was led to Christ by English missionaries who came to her village in southern China. And it's not very hard, really, for me to trace the carriage of the Gospel across the generations from my family back in China 150 years ago down to my children today. God shows his love to a thousand generations of those who love him. The big idea when we come to the Ten Commandments is this. The big idea is that we keep the commandments not to try and appease an angry God to earn his favour, Rather, we keep the commandments to please a God who has already showered us with love. Not appease an angry God, but to please one who has already showered us with love. I trust you can see there's a world of difference between those two goals, those two objectives. If you want proof, think of the way in which most religions of the world, and particularly at the time in the ancient Near East, Or after them, in the Greco-Roman gods, think about the way in which the people of the world tried to relate to the deities that they believed in. Most of the time, those gods were petty, vindictive, jealous, liable to swat you for no particular reason other than that they'd gotten sick of you. They needed to be bought off. Or they needed to be bribed to earn their favour. By contrast, what we're seeing here in Deuteronomy 5 is that the reason we act the way that we do is because of what God has already done for us. He has showered His love on us. Now I'm not going to say anything about the rest of the Ten Commandments because I want to get to the end of the chapter and that's the part that often we omit. So if you come with me now to verses 22 through 27 having had the Ten Commandments uh, reread for them, we're reminded that at this point, verse 27, uh, the people will promise to listen and obey. Verse 27, uh, this is the people talking to Moses, they say, go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says, tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you, we will listen and obey. That sounds pretty promising, doesn't it? They've heard of what God wants them to do. They understand what God has already done for them. And so their resolution is, Moses, tell God, we will listen and obey. Notice they're too afraid to say it to God themselves. So they have to go through Moses at this point. And once again, what well, we see, isn't God good? Because look at how God responds in verse 28. Verse 28, The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, And the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. I think there's a bit of humor going on here. The situation is that the people are too afraid to approach God, so they whisper something to Moses and say, Moses, you go and tell God. And God says, Yeah, actually, I could hear them all along. (laughs) I heard what they were saying to Moses. But he doesn't kind of come down on them like a ton of bricks at this point, he just says, How wonderful. They have resolved to live the way in which I have asked them to live. And so, verse 29 Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Now, here's my question for you What tone of voice do you think God has in verse 29? It's okay, it's not a blasphemous question to ask, but what, what kind of tone of voice do you think God has? Oh, that they would be inclined to keep the commandments all their days. Um, I think God's tone of voice is actually optimistic here. I think God thinks He's saying, may they do what they have said. The reason I ask that is because I wonder what you think of the Israelites at this point. What's your impression about their resolution? Are you optimistic? Or are you pessimistic? Now, before you answer that question, here's a couple of things to bear in mind. Firstly, their forefathers had failed spectacularly at their promise to do what God says. In fact, their forefathers had failed 40 years ago so spectacularly that they spent 40 years wandering around in a desert to make a trip that took 15 days to make. So, if you want to talk about family of origin, they don't have a particularly good, pe- particularly good pedigree so far. And what's more, before you make up your mind... Moses himself won't even enter the promised land because he couldn't keep God's commands either. So then let me ask you, what do you think? Do you think they're going to do it or not? Now one of our difficulties of course for us who are evangelicals who read the Bible, who love God's Word, is that actually we know just how dismally the Israelites will fail. And of course, the doctrine of original sin says that if we'd been there, we'd have been no better either. We'd have done exactly the same. We would have made good resolutions, but we would have been complete disastrous failures also. The difficulty with us thinking that is that we can start to think that, in fact, the Israelites never had a chance, that they were almost being set up to fail. And the problem with thinking that way is that soon enough we start thinking, why bother? Why would you even bother trying to keep the commands if you know you can't do them perfectly? And yet, interestingly, notice Moses' response. Verse 32 and 33. Here's what Moses says. So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Don't turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. Uh, This is Moses talking to them because he knows he can't go with them because of his own failures. Nevertheless, he thinks they can do it. Now, the way chapter 5 ends at verse 33, I think, is quite extraordinary. It's a stirring reminder of God's generosity. God is saying, your forefathers' unbelief It won't be held against this generation. That is, you have a fresh start. You have a clean slate. You have a chance to live God's way even though your parents failed. And so, for one last time, isn't God good? Isn't God good? He doesn't hold grudges. He bears no vendettas. There are no intergenerational consequences. We say that all the time, don't we? Most people in our world are born into poverty. They don't fall into it. And yet God is saying to this generation, you have a fresh start. They are to keep the commands, but they're to do so not to appease a God who's angry with them, but to please a God who has showered them with love. All right, that's Deuteronomy 5. Let me make a few Christian reflections and then try and wrap it up for us, okay? A few Christian reflections, and I said there, point four, a few Christian reflections via Luke chapter 6. So I'll get you to flip at this point in your Bibles to Luke 6, which you'll pay, find on page 729... Page 729, this is the second of the readings that Jan brought to us. And I picked this particular reading because it focuses in on the Sabbath commandment, obviously. Uh, what does Jesus have to say about the Old Testament commandments and laws? Does Jesus think that we ought to still keep them? Now, it's a hard question to answer at one level, and it's not straightforward... Partly because, obviously, some of the laws that were given back in the Old Testament, some of those 603, they were clearly situation-specific. They were clearly situation-specific. I say that because a whole stack of them are to do with how they're to to divide up the land of Canaan. We don't live in Canaan. Clearly, that's a situation-specific issue back then. What does that have to say to us today? I just want to pick on the Sabbath one because it's one that's historically, at least, been contentious amongst Christians Uh, That section that was read for us in Luke chapter 6, there's two passages, Uh, you noticed how it worked, but they're both about the Sabbath. The first is where the disciples work on the Sabbath by feeding themselves, to which Jesus reminds them of the fact that sometimes in the Old Testament, well actually it was okay to do that, despite the command that you shall do no work on the Sabbath. Uh, And the second incident, uh, which is the more striking one I think, is where there is a man who has come to the temple Who needs to be healed of a shriveled hand. And even though it's the Sabbath, Jesus heals him. There's a couple things to say about that. Firstly, uh, it's quite clear in Luke 6 that Jesus has walked into a trap. Jesus has walked into a trap. I say that because a man with a shriveled hand actually wasn't allowed to be in the synagogue. Uh, That was just one of the provisions. Wasn't even allowed to be there. Now, let's not talk about the right and the wrong of that, that was just one of the laws, but clearly, Jesus' opponents have brought him into the temple in violation of the acceptable laws just to try and trick Jesus. Because they've done it on the Sabbath and they suspect that Jesus is going to try and heal him. Which, of course, is exactly what Jesus does. And he does it because, as he says, the law should give life not take it away or hinder it in any any sense. Jesus is quite happy to break the Sabbath command as originally given to achieve a greater good. And although, of course, that principle can be abused, you know, the principle of looking for a greater good, that can be abused, I understand that. What Jesus is saying is, Don't get lost in the details of the rules and the regulations. Ask, what was the original intention? The Sabbath was meant to be an occasion for celebration. What better way to celebrate than to heal a man whose very livelihood has been compromised? And so in this passage, actually, we see the key to understanding the Old Testament commandments. It's actually tucked away in verse 5, if you have a look there. Chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here's the key for trying to work out how the Old Testament laws, that, so many of which were situations specific apply to us today. The key is to ask what Jesus says about them. For he is the Lord. So when it comes to the 603 Old Testament laws, what we do is that we keep the ones that Jesus says to keep and we uphold the principles which Jesus endorses, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. Now, I realise there's a lot more work to be done on it than that. In fact, we could sit down and go through the remaining 602 if you'd like, but you'll be happy to do that on your own, I'm sure. My point is, isn't it comforting to know that Jesus is the one who holds the key to the law? Jesus is the one who holds the key to the law. And I say that it's comforting because... We've seen here in Luke 6 how good and kind and compassionate Jesus is, which means we can trust our lives with him. He's not going to weigh us down with more rules and regulations that we cannot keep, He's not going to inflict us with burdens that are too heavy to bear. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, let me wrap it up then. Point five Do the good works which God prepared for us in advance to do. Uh, when we think about the law of God, uh, I think it's important for us to avoid two opposite extremes. Okay, two opposite extremes. One is what you call extreme legalism. Extreme legalism this is where we think we must keep every single rule, every single regulation, and we must do everything to make sure that we weed out any deviation, we do everything to keep it all. The only problem is we can't. We're just not very good at it. That's one extreme. The other extreme is what you call extreme libertarianism, extreme libertarianism, extreme freedom. This is where we acknowledge we can't keep them all, so don't even bother trying. The law has nothing to say to us. Two extremes, both of which are wrong. You see, the law does expose our sin. Romans 3 reminds us that through the law we become conscious of our sin. But the law exposes everyone's sin, believer and unbeliever alike. So what the law Particularly and exclusively does for Christians is that it shows us how to live God's way in response to what God has done for us, not to earn His favour, not to appease Him, but as a display of our love for Him. Uh, that's because, as I hinted at the start, I think first and foremost, the law shows us what God is like. The law shows us that God is good, because His law is a good gift to us. And that gift reflects well on the giver. If it doesn't, if you ever read the law and think ill of God, it means you've read the law in the wrong way. The law tells us about the goodness of God's character. And even if particular instructions aren't to be literally repeated today, the principles that they reveal uh, will give us clues as to how to live His way because they tell us something of what He is like. To come back to the Sabbath incident for one last time, that incident in Luke 6, would you not be horrified if Jesus refused to help that man on that day? Would you not... Think ill of Jesus' character if he did not act out of love and compassion. The law is meant to represent the goodness of God's character. And you see that in two ways. One is, of course, at a practical level, that's because law is better than anarchy. Uh, We saw that with some of the pictures before in the kids' talk. Uh, On the roads. Uh, If you've ever lived in a lawless country, if you come to Australia from a place that is lawless, you will be thankful to God for the rule of law in our country. Uh, But at a more profound level, for one last time, the law gives us opportunities to please our maker in the same way that an infant longs to please its parent. It's lovely when you see it, isn't it? A little child who longs to please their parent it never occurs to them that their parent might reject them or that they're trying to earn their parents' favour. They just long to please their parent because they know how dearly they have been loved. And so, for our last time, isn't God good? Uh, We love him because he gives us the law, not just for forgiving us when we can't keep it, but to show us how to live that might please him. Uh, if I said that I loved you, but never told you how you could love me back, it would not be a real relationship. If I left you in the dark as to how you might please me, why would you ever bother trying? So when it comes to God, why would you ever want to feel God's love if it left you helpless and dependent with no opportunity to reciprocate. No chance to honour him. No chance to glorify him. No chance to hear that wonderful commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, in every talk that I have the privilege of giving, I write a statement on the top line, before the talk actually, to remind me what the talk's meant to be about. I toyed with this statement several times this week, trying to work out what this passage was about. Originally, it said, at the end of this talk, I want my hearers to love God's law. But I realised, by the end of the week, what it should say is, at the end of this talk, I want my hearers to love God for showing us how to live His way. And with that in mind, I want to give you a memory verse, which is printed there at the bottom. I don't know if you do memory verses here, you should. They're good. They help you remember the Bible. Jesus did memory verses, so that's a good thing. He used them against the devil. So do memory verses. Uh, Ephesians 2. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not a gift from yourselves, it's a gift from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Let me pray that we'll do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's been written for us and for our salvation. Uh, we pray that this week, as we marvel once again at how good and kind you are, that you might enable us to live our lives in a way that honours you. Amen. Amen.